You know, every great story, or the really great ones, include this, this idea of reconciliation in them. You can turn to, to Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles as we begin to think about this, but think about Star Wars, right? You've got Darth Vader, who started good and then, and then turned evil and, uh, and, and was battling against his own son, but in the climax of the third movie, right, he, uh, he takes the emperor, he resists the emperor, he throws him down into the abyss, and Luke and his father are reconciled. I just totally spoiled that if you haven't seen those movies, but... But it's this incredible moment of reconciliation between, between Darth Vader and, and, his, and his son, right? You think about Braveheart, when Robert the Bruce, on the advice of his father, goes out and betrays William Wallace, and then they meet in the battlefield, and you can see in William's face that he's just gutted by the betrayal of this man who he thought was his friend. And, and Robert the Bruce is just as gutted, and he goes angrily to his father, and he says, I will never be on the wrong side again. And then for the remainder of the movie, he proves that out, and he carries forward the legacy of William Wallace. And, and that was historical. I mean, that really happened. In the movie Les Mis, or, or, or the Broadway show, right, uh, Jean Valjean is a, is a guy who just steals some bread to feed his family and ends up getting in prison. When he comes out, no one will give him a job. No one will help him. And there's a kind priest who welcomes him in and feeds him and, and houses him. And then Jean Valjean steals silver and runs away with it. He repays his kindness by stealing from him. And when the authorities capture him, and they're ready to, to, to throw him in jail once again. The priest comes and says, no, no, no. I gave that to him as a gift. And that simple act of grace and mercy transforms Jean Valjean's life. And he, and he becomes a man of character and integrity. And, and it impacts the way he lives the rest of his life. This idea of reconciliation is a part of every great story. And our lives are a story of reconciliation. And we're part of the greatest story of reconciliation that has ever been told. All of those stories are a dim reflection of the great story of reconciliation that God is working in our lives through Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. And the more that we connect in with that story and live and embrace that story, the more powerful and passionate and excited and purposeful our lives become. And so today we're going to look at this idea of, of reconciliation. And, and, and the question we've got to ask is, why is this so important? We've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to this church in, in Colossae and and if you haven't been with us, uh, we did a lot of background work on where it's coming from. But Paul's never been to this church. He's never met these people. But he's heard that the, a good work of the gospel has been started in them. But now some false teachers have come in to try and pull them away and steer them away from the truth. And so the question is, what's at stake? What's going to happen if they start to listen to these false teachers? What's going to happen if they start embracing these false teachings? And, and, and the thing is this, that the gospel is at the, is at the very heart. Reconciliation is at the very heart of, uh, of the greatest story that, that we've ever heard, right? And so to embrace a false and distorted version of the gospel rips the heart out of it. And it leaves those who could follow it cold and uninspired and lifeless, saved at the best by the skin of their teeth, uh, with no purpose, with no passion. And in some ways, if, if we're honest and we look around at the Western church, the American church, we could say, yeah, that sounds familiar, right? Like, that, that sounds a little bit like maybe what, what the, the American church, what the Western church has fallen into at times. And so, so for us, for the church in Colossae, the, the challenge is to regain that passion that's attached to the reconciliation that's been given to us by Jesus Christ. Paul wants to rip our hearts open. He wants to inspire us and fill us with hope so that we live a life of meaning and purpose. And so we want to dig into this today. Uh, we're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And he says there this, he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So just a couple verses we're going to look at today, but it's, it's pivotal and it's, and it's crucial because if you guys remember Keith's sermon last week, Paul just got telling us how amazing Jesus Christ is, how he is supreme, how he is sufficient, how he is preeminent, how he is above all, he's the greatest, uh, he's, he's amazing. But the only reason and the only way that we will, will, will be excited about that, the only reason that we will worship is if we see how that connects to us, how it connects into our story. If he's not just this, this great distant character, but if he's our great character, right? You can only get so excited about Tom Brady winning Super Bowls because he's not our guy, right? Carson Wentz brings the Super Bowl home. We get super excited about it, right? I'm not going to talk to the Pittsburgh fans in here, right? <laughs> so we're going to see three things, or we see three things in this passage, right? Number one, we needed to be reconciled. We're, this is a meat and potatoes kind of sermon, right? This is, not, this is not ethereal. It's not, this is like very direct, right? We needed to be reconciled. Number two, Jesus reconciled us. And number three, we must live as those who have been reconciled. The first one, we need to be reconciled. It's said in there that we were all by nature alienated from our creator, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And as I mentioned, Paul had never met these people. So how could he write with certainty and authority in this letter, hey, you guys were alienated from God. You were hostile in mind towards him. You were doing evil deeds. How can you write that to them? Well, the reason is, is because it's inherently true of everyone. <laughs> he could say that with authority because they were human beings, and every human being bears the same burden. And we see this all throughout Scripture, going back into the Psalms, into the prophets, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's no one who has not sinned. That there's no one who's lived a righteous and perfect life. We see in Ephesians that we were dead in our sins. We see in Romans that uh, uh, God shows love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so every single one of us, this is true. And so he could write this to this, these good Colossian Christians, ones who'd embrace the gospel, and he could say, hey, you guys are awesome. You're a great church, but you used to be alienated. You used to be hostile in mind towards God. You used to be full of evil deeds. Now, the question for you this morning is, do you embrace that truth? When you see that written there, um, do you say, yeah, that's my story? Or do you look at that and say, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. That sounds kind of hard, right? That, that sounds a little bit rough. Uh, the reality is, is that if you grew up in church, if you grew up in a Christian background, uh, you might see that and say, yeah, I know it says that a bunch of places in the Bible, so I know it's true. And so you get it in your head, but it might be hard for that to work its way into your heart to embrace that as a reality, right? You might uh, put that off in some fold of Christianity. Yeah, that's fire and brimstone preaching. That's, you know, that's just trying to shame people into heaven. You know, that's, 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 you know, that's one flavor, but that's not my variety. But the reality is, is that we need to embrace this reality. We're not certainly as evil as we could be. Most of us in here probably don't have something in their past that if it came to light would put them in jail, Maybe some of you guys do. I, you know, I, don't, I don't know all of your stories, right? But you might say, hey, I'm not a mass murderer. I haven't, I haven't committed acts of terrorism. I haven't committed genocide. I'm, you know, I'm not as bad as I could be. And it's true, we're not as bad as we could be. That's not what it's saying here. But the reality is, is that we're also not anywhere near as holy as we need to be. 
that, that the acts of rebellion that take place in our heart are just as significant as the ones that we do with our hands. And so Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if we look with lust, it's like we've already committed adultery in our heart. If we, if we, if we look at anger with our brother, it's like we've already murdered them, right? And so, so the rebellion of our heart is what really separates us from God. And all of us, whether we're ready to admit it or not, are, are guilty of that. And our, and our willingness to acknowledge that is, is part of the key of allowing the gospel to become not just a set of facts that you know, but a vibrant and active force that propels you forward and rips at your emotions in your heart, right? Our convictions uh, always have to be attached to our deepest needs. Until someone believes that they need Jesus, they'll never have anything greater than a sentimental attachment or an affinity towards him. And so that's part of the problem with witnessing sometimes. We'll go out and we'll tell people, hey, good news, Jesus died for your sins so you can go be with him in heaven. And the problem isn't necessarily they don't believe that Jesus lived or that Jesus died or maybe even that Jesus intended to die for them. What they don't believe is that they needed anybody to save them, right? They say, hey, I'm a pretty good person. I look at the world around me and people seem pretty messed up and I think I've got it together pretty good. So that's a nice offer, but I don't really think that I need it, right? It's like when you walk into the mall and, and there's the people like trying to give you stuff and you know you walk in and you're just like, no, I don't need it, I don't need it. I don't know what you're selling and I don't care, I don't need it, right? Because if I talk to you long enough, I might be convinced that I do need it. Jesus is what we truly need. I, I shared a couple stories there at the beginning, Star Wars and Braveheart and, and Les Mis, incredible stories, no doubt. But uh, when we look at the great story of reconciliation, uh, Jesus, I think, trumped all of them uh, with a parable uh, that he told about uh, a lost son. And uh, I wanted to take a brief look at this this morning, and I know most of you know this parable, but I want to invite you to look at it with fresh eyes. Uh, this morning uh, as I share it with you. Uh, to give a little context, at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, uh, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so we had the, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, the broken, the ones that would say, No, yes, we are alienated from God. We have been hostile in mind towards him. We're committing evil deeds. And then we had the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones that said, no, I, that's not me. I haven't done those things. Um, and I don't know why Jesus is hanging out with them, right? And so this group is gathered together, and Jesus tells them this parable. And so I invite you to just listen, uh, and listen with fresh ears to this story. So Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it 
and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And Jesus ends the parable there. <laughs> and so we don't know what happens from that place forward. And, and here's what I, I want you to see here. If we, if we don't see ourselves as having been alienated and hostile in mind towards our Creator, then we, like the older brother, will feel that God owes us something. That He owes us a life of comfort, a, a life of, uh, of good health, a life of uh, he, salvation was, was owed to us, right? That it, that it wasn't a gift of grace. It was something we earned through our efforts. And every one of us has got to work that out in our hearts. We've, we've got to go on that journey, right? And there's a couple of interesting things that I, that, that I saw in there. Really, what, what, what happens when that story ends, right? The father says, hey, I want you to come into the party. Come celebrate. And the elder son is left with two choices. He can remain out there and say, nope, nope, I did all the right things for you, dad, and this is how you repay me. Or just like the younger brother, he'd go to his dad and, and realize the brokenness of his heart, and he can say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I did all those good things. I never disobeyed you, but I wasn't doing it for you. I was doing it for me. I was trying to keep myself preserved. I was trying to, trying to manipulate you to get what I wanted out of you. And that was wrong, and that was broken, and I was lost, and I need you to forgive me and invite me back in as well. It's interesting, the father says, my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I don't think he's referring to when he was in the pigsty or in that far-off country. I think what the father's referring to is that the, the son, the moment he came to his dad and said, hey, I want my inheritance. I want to leave. I don't want you anymore. I want to make my own way in the world. In that moment, he had separated himself. He had become alienated. He was dead in that family relationship, right? He was lost. The father looked at him and said, the only way forward is he's going to have to go and make his mistakes and and I'm going to pray every day that he'll come back. And so when he came back, it was a physical coming back, but the greater coming back was a spiritual coming back. His heart had turned. His heart was no longer lost. His heart was no longer alienated from the Father. And so I ask each one of us this morning, where are we at? Have we embraced the reality that we needed Jesus to reconcile us? We aren't just kind of going along in the flow of things. We aren't just going along on Team Jesus, but we were separated by our rebellion and by our wayward heart, and we needed Jesus desperately. I know for myself, I've shared this story with you guys before, but there was a, we were on a mission trip to Brazil, and um, we're doing some work. We're painting this, this building, you know, just kind of doing some things, and this, uh, this one song came on from Reliant K, and it uh, uh, has these lyrics about, you know, um, uh, prodigal son-type lyrics, right? Like, when I got tired of running from you, I stopped, and I came back, and you said, I miss you, come home. And, and for whatever reason, I'm there working, and all of a sudden, I just start crying. 
right? And um, I'm like, man, I need a moment. And so I like, I went off by myself, prayed, you know, just kind of tried to gather myself. I really didn't even understand what happened. But I was just so emotionally touched. And so the next morning, we're having a debrief after breakfast, and I'm trying to explain. I'm, I'm like, man, yeah, I, I don't know. I was just listening to that song, and it just, it struck me, which is weird, because I, I don't think of myself as a prodigal son. And as soon as I said it, it clicked, like, yeah, that, that's it. You don't think that you're a prodigal son, but you are, right? You don't think that you're alienated. You don't think that you're rebelling against God, but the reality is, is you are. And so that was a huge moment for me to connect to that, to understand what that meant. And I know I, I've talked with many of you. I've, I've spoken with many of you. And, um, man, I get, there are some in this room that when I talk with you about the past and where you've come from, the tears just come, right? Like, you're just like, man, I can't believe what God has brought me from. I can't believe what he has done. And there's a continual softness of heart. But, but for many of us, we, we don't have that tender place in our heart, right? When we hear Jesus' name, we don't, we don't feel that, that incredible debt of gratitude. We don't feel the power of what he's done. And I want to encourage you this morning that the way forward is to recognize your brokenness and your need for him that he didn't have to come and save you, but he chose to. And you weren't deserving of it, but he did it anyways. We have been reconciled. If we've placed our faith in Jesus, we have been reconciled. Number two, Jesus reconciled us. It was Jesus who did it in his body of flesh by his death. And so this is, is really significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it had a great cost. It wasn't like he just waved his hand and said, forgiven. <laughs> What's next, right? The, the, the God who is spirit came and took on flesh and lived a sinless, perfect life and allowed his creation to torture and crucify him and reject him and spit in his face and mock him to purchase our reconciliation. That our reconciliation came at an incredible cost. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to be a good father right now. I'm trying to figure, figure out how to do this. Uh, my daughter, Emma, she's 11. She has an iPad that she bought with Christmas money, and um, she always gets a lot of Christmas money. The relatives like to pour it on her, right? So, so she's always loaded, right? And so, so I warned her. I was like, you got to have a case on that. You got to have a case on your iPad. But she's like, ah, oh, it doesn't, nah, nah, nah. And then she dropped it. Screen shattered, right? And so she's like, hey, hey, my screen shattered. Um, uh, can I, I, I want to go repair it. I want to buy a new one, whatever, you know, let's do it. And I, as a father, I'm trying to teach her, like, hey, the answer is not just spend more money, right? <laughs> the answer is not always just go to the bank and take out some more money and, and replace it, right? Like, I, I want her to embrace the cost, that that costs something. Now, that's a silly small example, right? And I don't know if I'm doing a good job with it or not, right? But, but I want her to understand that there's a cost associated with that. Something that's just given to us, we don't treat with high regard, but something that we save and, and, and sacrifice for so that we can get, we value that, we treasure that, right? We should understand the cost of what Jesus has done for us. And we should also see that his death in the flesh was the perfect spotless sacrifice. And it wasn't a reflection of the law. The law told them that they needed to bring a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. And the priest needs to be unblemished. He needs to be clean. And then he needs to sacrifice that lamb for the forgiveness of sins. But, but what Jesus did, that wasn't a reflection of that. Those sacrifices were actually pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb, and he was the perfect high priest. And when he gave his sacrifice, it was perfectly acceptable to God. 
And all the sacrificial system up to that point was all pointing to so that when Jesus would come, they would see, and oh, this is what this was all about all along. This was pointing us to him. He did it perfectly. And this is why everything centers on the gospel. It centers on Jesus that as a church, we always have to go to Jesus, that Jesus is the one who reconciled us. We didn't reconcile ourselves, and so it's easy to get away from the center, which is Jesus, and get out here to say, hey, we're a church, which means we're good people who do good works. And after a while, we can just think that we're good people who do good works. But if we're not centering it continually on Jesus, if Jesus is not the one who's driving us out to do the good works, then the good works aren't good works anymore. They have no value, right? Our good works have to be flowing out of a relationship with Jesus, that we have to keep coming back to the gospel over and over again to be renewed and revived and, and challenged and pushed forward and, and to celebrate Jesus and to make sure that he gets all the glory and we don't get the glory and we're doing it for him. But at the same time, it, it does have to push us out, which is number three, right? We must live as those who have been reconciled. We needed to be reconciled. Jesus reconciled us, and now we need to live as those who've been reconciled that the gospel should push us out into good works, into doing things uh, that honor and glorify his name. We've been reconciled so that we can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus has accomplished this. This is my true identity. And so when I'm, when I'm motivated by the fact that that is my true identity, when I fall short of that, I'm convicted. And each day I wake up and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I've been reconciled to the king He's created me to do good works for him. That's what I'm here to do today. I hate to go back to the football references. That's just where my mind is right now, right? But, but our boy Carson, right, if he, um, if he says, man, I'm a rookie and I'm just bound to screw up and it's just a matter of time before I come back down to earth, if he goes out and plays the game that way and throws an interception, he's like, oh, I knew it was coming. It was sooner or later. I'm just going to settle down into mediocrity, right? Like that's, that's who I am. That's, I'm just a rookie, right? But if he goes out and says, hey, I'm trying, to be a, I'm, tr I'm trying to be the best of the best. I'm trying to be as best, the best player that I can be. And if I make a mistake, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to keep going. We're down 20 points. So what? We're going to win this game, right? And sometimes that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But here's the danger. We can, we can veer off of that uh, into a false gospel of self-speak where we think that we're the one. Hey, just believe it. I'm a good person. Uh, I'm, I'm worthy. People like me. Uh, I can accomplish anything that I set my mind to. Right? We quickly veer off into that, and that's not what the gospel is. The gospel says Jesus has reconciled us to do good works for his kingdom. And so if we're doing good things for him and for his glory and in his name, then we can have confidence uh, that he's going to see it through, that we're going to accomplish it, that we're going to see it fulfilled. If we want to use Jesus to build our own wealth and our own prosperity and our own success and our own name and our own pride, then there's no guarantee <laughs> that that's going to come through. And we shouldn't proclaim that. We shouldn't believe that. Jesus is here for his cause, and we should be here for his cause. How do you think the prodigal son lived going forward? After the party over, was over and the fattened calf was eaten, what do you think his life was like after that? I, I believe he woke up and he said, I can't believe that I sit back in my father's good graces. I can't believe I've been welcomed back into this home. I can't believe I squandered so much of our family wealth. I'm going to work hard to honor my father. Not to earn his forgiveness, he's already given it to me. But because he's forgiven me, 
Now I have a motivation in life. I want to honor my dad with everything I do. I want to, I want to be successful so that, so that his name can be honored, that this great man who has welcomed me back into his home, I want to do everything I can to honor him with the remainder of my life, right? And that's what we're called to live as as Christians. And, and, and there's power in that, right? Because if the story was just like, hey, there was a dad who had two sons. One was a little bit wayward. One was really obedient. He loved both of them. The end. <laughs> That, that doesn't bring tears to anyone's eyes, right? That doesn't, that doesn't compel us forward. It's, it's the fact that the son was wayward and yet the, son, the father invited him back in. And that's, that's the story that we're in. And when we see ourselves in those shoes, it motivates us not just to receive the forgiveness that he offers, but to go forward and to do great things for his name. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And some will point to this and say, hey, yeah, you... You know, you better be careful or you're going to lose what you've got. But look at the certainty that, that Paul speaks with in the letter to Colossians. He says, you have been reconciled. Uh, you have been saved. You have received this gift of grace. Uh, so it would be weird if all of a sudden he said, you've got all this stuff, but don't screw up or you'll lose it all, right? Uh, there's certainty. You have eternal salvation. You've been given that, but, but don't make a mistake or else it's gone, right? So, so that doesn't seem to fit with what he's saying here. And so, so uh, I think that when he says that, uh, assuming that you don't shift away, speaks not so much to their eternal salvation, but it, it speaks to their fruitfulness. It speaks to their effectiveness. It speaks to their uh, being on mission for the kingdom. Because the Bible speaks and it says that, he says that you're presented before him holy and righteous and without blemish, right? And, and the Bible says that when we die, we will be presented before Jesus, that we will stand and we'll give an account of our life. And I, I've got a passage here for you out of, out of Corinthians. It'll be up on the screen. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his reconciliation, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice, that is the foundation of the Christian life. There is no other foundation if the foundation is our good works, it's not the gospel. If the foundation is, is, is family heritage, it's not the gospel, right? The foundation is the good works of Jesus Christ that are counted to us as righteousness. That's the foundation. But what will we build upon that? What will we build on that foundation? It says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, the day where we stand before him, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is the, this, this is the balance of the Christian life, right? We were made, we were created, we were crafted to do good works. In Ephesians it says, it says uh, not of our own works, lest any of us should boast. We weren't saved by our own works, but we are his workmanship created to do good works. He saved you because he wants you to do great things for his name. He wants you to build with gold and with silver and with precious gems that will last into eternity. And so the question for each of us today is, what are we building that will last after this lifetime? Is our heart poured towards investments of things that are going to last eternally? Or are we wasting away our days on things that aren't going to matter and aren't going to last?
Have we embraced some sort of false teaching or false gospel that puts our hope here in the present, rather in the future with Jesus? This is the question that each one of us has to ask ourselves today. And collectively, as a church, we get to do it together, which is awesome. I'm excited about God is bringing us opportunities. We've been praying as leaders. We're saying, God, we really want to build things that are going to last into eternity. We want to do things. And God is, is just left and right bringing potentials for partnership and work in our community and in the city and abroad. That He just keeps bringing opportunities before us. And we are going to celebrate as a church the opportunity that we get to pour into these things. Not all the work that we do that lasts is going to be right here in Horsham, right? It's going to be it's going to be an investment in the kingdom wherever the kingdom is being manifest. And I'm so excited, guys, that we get to be a part of that. Uh, but it happens by every one of us doing it in our life as God opens opportunities for us. And it happens for us as a church doing it together. So as I conclude this morning, I, 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 want, to, I want to show you the final piece here. Um, Paul says, he says, um, The gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven— and of which I, Paul, became a, mis- a minister. This, uh, this gospel of reconciliation, this incredible truth, this great story is not a hidden story. It's proclaimed. It's proclaimed by his people, and it says that creation itself proclaims God's majesty. It says in Romans 1 uh, that, that, that everyone is without an excuse because God's creation demonstrates his, his goodness, his, his might, his work, so that no one is left with an excuse, right? Everyone here is accountable to God, that, that the, the path of reconciliation has been laid out before us, and it's our choice to, to walk in that path, to receive that free gift of salvation or not. And so I encourage you today, number one, if you haven't been reconciled, if you are still walking hostile and opposed to God, I encourage you that today is the day that the Father is standing there with open arms and he wants to welcome you as his child. He wants to welcome you back into the family. And you do that simply by placing your faith in Jesus, by believing that he gives you what you need. He gives you forgiveness of sins. He gives you his perfect and spotless record. And he paid the great cost for your sins so that you could be reconciled to the Father. And if you believe that today, you place your faith in him, you can have eternal life. For those of us that are here that would say, yes, I have placed my faith in him, but um, I don't know. I'm struggling to, to see myself I, I want to understand more deeply what it means to be reconciled. I, I don't tend to view myself as, as broken, alienated, separated from the Father. Pray today that the Holy Spirit will reveal that part of your heart, that he'll, he'll melt that part of your heart that's hardened towards him in that way so that you can go forward with passion. And I want you to pray this morning about, God, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ that will last into eternity? that when I stand before you, that you, you will see it and it will bring honor and glory to your name.